This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think I should start out today's program with a couple things I got sent. The first was, April Fool's Day is canceled this year as no prank could match the unbelievable crap happening in the real world right now. And somebody, I think it was Gary Chu, posted an item of an actual billboard, apparently, from somewhere in, uh, in the Midwest, from a lawyer named Larry Archie. The tagline on Larry Archie's billboard is, Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Yeah, I guess at that point you call Larry Archie, attorney at law. I don't know. For my money, that kind of summarizes a lot of attitude we're bumping into. Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Just because Robert Mueller didn't point out that he found enough evidence for collusion between the president and Russia to make it a criminal indictment. I don't know. I suppose there's some people out there that think the man is totally innocent in spite of the fact that the actual report running somewhere between 300 and 1,000 pages remains hidden from public view. Someone named Lisa posted on the web, and I don't know where, but it did find its way to me somehow, that if I was accused of a crime I know I didn't commit, I would want every sentence of the report exonerating me released so that I could rub it in over and over. If I was innocent, former GOP political operative David Frum posted a five-part summary. One, a truck of TVs is hijacked. Two, your son meets with the hijackers. Three, your campaign manager shares route information with them. Four, you're recorded on video saying, I love truck hijacking. Five, the TVs are in your house. He signed off, happy no collusion day. Which is to be distinguished from April Fool's Day. However similar the two may appear. And I don't know if anybody saw this one. I guess this is real. This is a screenshot being sent around from Fox News. The headline is, Trump cuts U.S. aid to three Mexican countries. As far as we can reconstruct, the actual news item attached to that was the U.S. reducing or cutting off aid to El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, which apparently Fox News thinks are actually three Mexican countries. They must know their countries, and they just figure they're full of Mexicans. What's the difference? And furthermore, I was sent an email in the last week from, oh my goodness, it's from Edward McMillan. It, it says that he uh, was impressed by that uh, Alex Gibney documentary, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. So you like that one, huh? I did. Thank you for the recommendation. Apparently, Douglas Heaven, the technology writer who uh, occasionally writes for New Scientist magazine, was also knocked out by this documentary. He noted that the awful tale of tech guru Elizabeth Holmes makes riveting viewing. My favorite excerpt from the piece by Douglas Heaven is where he notes that many employees of Theranos knew that Holmes's machine couldn't be built. As one said... You just can't bend your way around the laws of physics. You can't just have a great marketing campaign and get around these things. If they told senior management, they would be told, maybe you're not a Silicon Valley person. 
And as you may have noted, dear listener, over the past few months to, I guess, at this point, year, year and a half, we too at Radio Parallax are not Silicon Valley people. And I got to tell you, we are starting to wonder about Silicon Valley people. Douglas Heaven asked the question, how could so many smart people have been duped for so long? From the outset, Holmes signed impressive investors, including media mogul Rupert Murdoch and the founder of computer giant Oracle. I think they're referring to Larry Ellison, aren't they? Despite having nothing to show them. Channing Robertson, head of science at Stanford, was recruited as an advisor and the first board member. Her board of directors included Henry Kissinger, and she made friends with Bill Clinton. And I can't recall specifically whether it was on the board, but former Secretary of State George Shultz was one of her biggest boosters for quite a while. Here's something else that's really amazing about this story. Elizabeth Holmes and her uh, company president, Sonny Balwani, both indicted on nine counts of fraud, have yet to go to trial. If they don't go to jail, there is something wrong with our judicial system. Hey, but, whoa, well, there is something wrong with our judicial system. So uh, we won't be surprised if she fails to get a perp walk. Mr. Merlin points out that she's still out there telling the public that this this tech will work. This kind of reminds me of a moment about, I don't know, almost 20 years ago when I was listening to the Motley Fool radio program, wherein they offer things like stock tips and advice and investing. And uh, Enron, at that time, was judged to be the United States' fifth largest corporation. The brilliant guys at Motley Fool said, oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're doing great. Yeah, you, this looks like a pretty good investment. But, but if you do invest in it, see if you can figure out what it is they do, because we can't figure it out. Maybe that's one reason why the Motley Fool and Warren Buffett are not usually mentioned in the same sentence. Buffett seems to have a policy that if he doesn't understand what the company does, he doesn't get involved in the company. By the way, update on Enron. Former Enron CEO Jeffrey Skilling is planning a new energy venture just weeks after being released from prison where he served 12 years. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Skilling has been holding meetings with former Enron executives and others in an effort to win backing for a mystery project that some described as, quote, a digital platform connecting investors to oil and gas projects, end quote. I have to say, Mr. Millen, I feel at this point, if you are dumb enough to, to invest in a mystery project that connects a digital platform to oil and gas projects, you deserve everything bad that's going to happen to you. I mean, you know, Google and Facebook are supposed to be run by really smart people, right? So how is it that a Lithuanian man managed to steal $122 million from the two of them? Apparently, prosecutors in the U.S. are alleging that Ivaldas Rimasaukas and several unnamed co-conspirators helped orchestrate a scheme in which they posed as representatives of the Taiwanese hardware maker Quanta Computer. They set up a fake company, also called Quanta, only this one was in Latvia, then sent invoices asking that payments be wired to the fake Quanta. Both Facebook and Google apparently bought it to the tune of millions of dollars. Google sent $23 million to bank accounts created by Risk Malkus, and Facebook sent $98 million in 2015. Google has said it recouped the funds after detecting the fraud, while Facebook is still waiting to recover some of its money. You know, that could be a really long wait.
In other bad news from Mark Zuckerberg, federal prosecutors are conducting a criminal investigation into Facebook's data sharing deals with a number of large technology companies, according to the New York Times. As part of the investigation, a New York grand jury has subpoenaed two well-known smartphone makers for records related to the investigation, according to the report. Facebook had data sharing arrangements with more than 150 companies, according to a December report in the Times. The deals helped Facebook gain more users, according to the report. And its partners were able to access user data without obtaining consent. Many of the partnerships ended years ago, the Times noted, but the deals with Amazon and Apple were ongoing at the time of the story. A Facebook spokesperson did not address the New York Times story specifically, but did tell CNN Business... It has already been reported that there are ongoing federal investigations, including by the Justice Department. As we've said before, we're cooperating with investigators and take these probes seriously. We've provided public testimony, answered questions, and pledged that we will continue to do so. That's very reassuring. In the future, they will continue to provide public testimony and answer questions. Last July, Facebook began facing a widening inquiry from the federal government with three federal agencies and the DOJ looking into how the political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica obtained the personal data of up to 87 million Americans. The company's been juggling a number of scandals and investigations since the Cambridge Analytica revelations nearly a year ago. Last week, CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that the company would be pivoting to privacy. That's Silicon Valley speak. It means you change the direction you're going because the other direction you were going wasn't working out so well. Facebook is now going to focus more on its messaging platforms and enabling more ephemeral features and encrypted chats. What a relief. And by the way, if you're listening in Latvia, can, 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 you, can you see what you can do to get some money sent back to Facebook? We reported on uh, Tim Wu's talk at the Commonwealth Club a few weeks back, how it was that he, as a lawyer and an expert on antitrust, has pointed out that one way out of this mess is going to be to actually enforce some antitrust regulations that have been on the books for, I don't know, 100 years. Anyway, as Wu points out, uh, Facebook should never have been allowed to purchase WhatsApp and Instagram. They, they should have remained competitors. But something that was once a Facebook competitor, surprisingly, is still around. I'm speaking of MySpace. Writing in the New York Times, Nira Chosky notes that for many one-time users, uh, the notion that MySpace was still around was surprising to people. But as of last February, the the website had about 2 million unique visitors, which is, of course, a far cry from the 250 million that made it the most visited website in the U.S. back in 2006. But MySpace is in the news because the once mighty social media giant accidentally destroyed more than 10 years worth of their user data. Although it has long since been overshadowed by Facebook, MySpace was a formidable force in music hosting at one time. It amassed the biggest library of digital music ever, which apparently was now owned by an ad tech firm. Last week, MySpace admitted that all its user data from 2003 and 2013 was lost in a technical mishap. That includes 53 million songs from 14 million artists, some of which may have been preserved nowhere else. You know, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse on some of this, but, you know, I do want to go back to an article from New Scientist from May of last year. A very simple piece, just saying we're only just realizing the power of data. 
This brief article noted how back in 2007, Facebook was only a few years old. Millions around the world were rushing to use the platform. Few realized that their interactions with a website could be such a valuable asset or be so revealing. It was about that time that David Stilwell, a recent psychology graduate, set up the Facebook personality quiz app, My Personality. It gathered data on how users mapped to the five big personality traits. Now, in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, people are realizing their personal data is valuable. Hello? That's the whole business model for Facebook. But yes, it took a while for people to wake up to this fact. Something we keep trying to set the alarm clock on here. But the article notes, last year, research from the My Personality team showed how people on Facebook are more susceptible to adverts that are tailored to their psychological traits. Across 3.5 million people, the team found that those targeted in this way were 40% more likely to click on an advert and 50% more likely to make a purchase. Facebook reportedly doesn't allow targeting directly based on psychological traits, but by finding correlations between things people have liked on the platform and traits, it's possible to switch between the two. In other words, a data set like that gathered by my personality is the tool you need to make all this happen. It's still not clear, said the magazine, that this is enough to swing an election, but even a small effect amplified by social media to millions of people may have a significant impact. I think it's pretty well acknowledged at this point that both Brexit and the Donald Trump presidency were certainly helped to a significant degree by these monkey shines. And if you're the sort of person that takes a dim view of the Trump presidency, that would include Radio Parallax, eh, this is bad news. And we got some more bad news from the business world. Apple has unveiled its long-anticipated suite of new entertainment, news, and financial products. They had a star-studded event. Apparently in conjunction with this, it was capped by an appearance by Oprah Winfrey, promoting a new streaming video service with original programming. Apple also announced its $10 per month subscription news service, a video gaming platform, and a new credit card with Goldman Sachs, a notable effort by the tech giant to spread into new industries. We have expressed great concern on this program in the past about the fact that there is this ever-tightening bond between Wall Street and Silicon Valley. We're constantly hearing about uh, how it is that uh, this company or that has an IPO and all of a sudden there's a bunch of new techie billionaires running around in their Teslas. I guess at some point in the not-too-distant future, these guys are just going to buy up the entire Bay Area. And here's a theme we hope we can keep returning to on this program. We keep hearing here in California about our housing crisis. We hear smart-ass urban planners talking on KQED about how, although we brought 600,000 new workers here to California, we've only built like 150,000 new housing units. All right. Well, if you ever passed Econ 1A and recall supply and demand, you would understand this has a lot to do with the inflated cost of housing in the Bay Area. I was shocked to learn recently that apparently San Jose, California is the fifth most expensive housing market in the world. So, you know, if prices are too high because of where that supply and demand curve meet, got two ways to fix it. One is to increase the supply, pave over the entire Bay Area. Perhaps, you know, if we could fill in San Francisco Bay, 
imagine the number of housing units that could be built. Of course, that's sort of a silly thing to say. San Francisco Bay has been one-third filled in. 150 years ago, before everybody flocked to the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay complex was 50% larger than it is today, at least the wet parts. So what keeps irking this correspondent is the fact that it is just taken as a given that, of course, all these people that we're bringing to the Bay Area should live in the Bay Area. What happened to the fact that high-tech industries were going to eliminate the problem we had with commuting, the problem we had with housing issues in expensive areas, all the while increasing the freedom that employees had to work in their own environment. Yes, working at home was supposed to solve all this. So at this point, I'd like to go to the archives and again pull up my article from February 25th, 2013 by Claire Kane Miller and Catherine Rampell from the New York Times under the title, Yahoo Orders Home Workers Back to the Office. And I believe I have quoted from this piece at least once, possibly two or three times, but you know, I'm going to do it again. Excerpting from the article, since Marissa Mayer became chief executive of Yahoo, she's been working hard to get the internet pioneer off its deathbed and make it an innovator once again. She started with free food and new smartphones to every employee, borrowing from the playbook of Google, her employer, till last year. Now, though, Yahoo has made a surprise move, abolishing its work-at-home policy and ordering everyone to work in the office. A memo explaining the policy change from the company's Human Resources Department says face-to-face interaction among employees fosters a more collaborative culture, a hallmark to Google's approach to its business. Now, here's the part I like. Studies show that people who work at home are significantly more productive, but less innovative. That's a quote from John Sullivan, a professor of management at San Francisco State University who runs a human resource advisory firm. He said, if you want innovation, then you need interaction. If you want productivity, then you want people working from home. Here's the part I especially like. Technologies developed in Silicon Valley, from video chat to instant messaging, have made it possible for employees across America to work remotely. Yet, Like Yahoo, many tech companies believe that working in the same physical space drives innovation. A Yahoo spokeswoman, Sarah Gorman, declined to comment, saying only the company did not publicly discuss internal matters. But the company's memo, written by the director of human resources at Yahoo and later published uh, online, said, Some of the best decisions and insights come from hallway and cafeteria discussions, meeting new people, and impromptu team meetings. Speed and quality are often sacrificed when we work from home. The article notes that nearly all tech companies have desks packed tightly together without walls and communal work areas with sofas and bean bags. At the company Zappos, an e-commerce firm owned by Amazon, which previously allowed some customer service agents to work at home, now is a rule against working remotely. The company locks all office doors except one, so employees are forced to run into more people on their way in and out. They quote a spokesman saying, it's to maximize those serendipitous encounters. The success of our company is built on our culture and our perspective is you really can't do that on email. Okay, again, everyone seems to agree that you get more productivity out of people when they're working at home. But these companies are determined to bring us more innovations, you know, robot doctors and the like. But I do find this supremely ironic that things like video chat, 
I mean, do you really have to bump into somebody at the water cooler or, you know, as you're, you know, filing in and out of the same entrance and exit, you know, elbowing each other? Is that really the key to innovation? Really? The article also points out that Ms. Mayer, who became chief executive at 37 while pregnant with her first child, could have made the business world more hospitable for working parents. They quoted Ruth Rosen, a professor emeritus of women's history at UC, as saying, the irony is that she has broken the glass ceiling but seems unwilling for other women to lead a balanced life in which they care for their families and still concentrate on developing their skills and career. So, I don't see any reason, really, in the grand scheme of things, why these companies couldn't sacrifice maybe a little innovation and allow their workers to continue living in Stockton and Lathrop and Manteca and Tracy while working in Sunnyvale, Palo Alto, San Jose, etc. The fact of the matter is they could do this. Now, these places are a little less attractive. I'm sure you can't get as good a latte in Manteca as you can in Mountain View. But is that really necessary for all the workers we're importing from Bangalore? And we'll do the whole H-1B visa thing another day. But lest you think the Democratic Party, which is not the same as the Republican Party, supposedly, is going to reach out and find a good solution to this problem, well, don't hold your breath. There's no thought among any of our Democratic politicos that, you know, we might retain people in Lathrop or Turlock or Modesto who work in Silicon Valley. No, no. Democratic Party has always been in bed to a significant degree with home builders in California. So it is that the Democratic Party's solution to this so-called housing crisis is rent control. An article by Hannah Wiley in the East Bay Times notes that a group of Assembly Democrats has introduced a bundle of housing bills last week signaling to Gavin Newsom that they were ready to work with him on fulfilling one of the new governor's campaign promises. Lawmakers are saying that the state's housing affordability crisis is so urgent, rent control deserves another look. I don't know. I think if you believe that rent control is going to solve the housing crisis in the Bay Area, you, I don't know, you're smoking crack. I don't know, I don't know that I would go as far as George Carlin, who noted some years back that anyone who thinks there's going to be political solutions to our problems is just not a serious person. I don't know if I go that far, but I do want to quote from the late, great Hunter S. Thompson who once noted that the main problem in any democracy is that crowd-pleasers are generally brainless swine who can go out on a stage and whip their supporters into an orgiastic frenzy, then go back to the office and sell every one of the poor bastards down the tube for a nickel apiece. And finally, we, we try and read books that we talk about on this program, which is something of a rarity, I think, in the world of radio interviews and TV interviews. But sometimes we are intrigued by a book review to the point where we try and use the book review in lieu of the book. We're going to do that today with a curious book titled The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power by Shoshana Zubhoff. There is extensive review of this book in New Scientist, and I want to quote from it. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism is over 700 pages. It painstakingly outlines the economic form we are living under, mostly in the West, but increasingly globally. Sitting with a coffee and cake in London, Zupop muses on how she decided on her title. The way that we are an information society is completely different from what we imagined when the Internet first presented itself 
and we thought it was going to be empowering and democratizing. Instead, it's an actual challenge to democracy, a controlling power. Surveillance capitalism, as typified by Google, Facebook, and Twitter, makes profits by seducing us onto various platforms and monitoring our behavior. That information is sold to advertisers who target us ever more precisely with products and services. This much we think we know. Zuboff's challenge to this thinking is deep and threefold. First, she wants to alert us to how relentlessly this form of capitalism is. As much as we try and steer away from the ism words on this program, I think there's no denying that what we're talking about here fits under the title of surveillance capitalism. Taking in what I'd say maybe a slightly Marxist slant, the article notes that industrial capitalism works by generating surpluses. Zuboff's capitalism, however, generates its surpluses from human behavior, public and private. And the more it understands about us, the better it can sell its predictions about our desires and next moves. The surplus was created accidentally, but has now become a secret resource, as much about subtle coercion as about making money. Second, she emphasizes that it doesn't need to be this way. When aware homes, quote-unquote, were first mooted in 2000, it assumed that the data they gathered on health, fitness, security, and like would be in a closed loop. Fast forward to 2017, when two academics at the University of London analyzed a thermostat made by Nest, by then part of the empire that includes Google. Nest's apps can gather data from other connected devices, including your car, your oven, your bed, to keep the data private and stop the predictions made from it being sold on Google to third parties, the research has concluded, well, the consumer would have to study a minimum of 1,000 privacy end-user and terms-of-service contracts. The original, single, closed loop of the aware home would never keep information-hungry firms like Google at bay. The piece reminds us that Google's founders weren't keen to rely upon advertising for incoming knowing that it would corrupt the search process. But in 2001, the dot-com financial crisis in Silicon Valley pushed some in the industry in a wholly new direction towards something that can only be successful if done secretly. Surveillance. Skipping ahead in the piece. We're in a strange world where familiar politics are upside down. In place of totalitarianism, there's another coinage. Instrumentarianism. She uses this word to describe the logic of and power that comes from recording and anticipating human behavior. When the elites of surveillance capitalism quietly harvest the raw data of human actions and steadily shape our sense of the future without us realizing it. We may scoff at China's social credit system, which lets the state use all manner of techno-surveillance to reward and punish its citizens, while the Western version seems to be headed in the same direction. Near the end of the book, Zuboff lays the blame for this at the feet of some of Silicon Valley's otter cultural assumptions. She said, inside these organizations, there's a milieu of absolutism and intense hierarchy. They determine the standards. They translate the greater good into behavioral requirements. I refer to them as a priesthood. They have a conceit that goes with their unique knowledge. For them, computation replaces politics. She warns in the book that just as industrial capitalism flourished at the expense of nature and now threatens to cost us the earth, so an information civilization shaped by surveillance capitalism and its new instrumentarian power will thrive at the expense of human nature and will threaten to cost us our humanity. She ends her book with a plea for the importance of a version of a sanctuary, 
a free and unmonitored zone where all humans feel they can shape their intentions as they see fit. A place that is anathema to the modern merchants of surveillance and prediction. Finally, she said at the end of the interview with Pat Kane, who wrote the piece, It kills me to think the only way my children will experience sanctuary when you clear a space for the experience of your own will is by hiding from an unimpeded power. The idea that we have to hide in our own lives is intolerable. Well, we think so too. So in the one minute I have left, I'm going to let Silicon Valley slide and instead go after hedge fund managers. They're always fun. According to QZ.com, the combined income for the managers of the top 10 hedge funds was $7.7 billion last year. This comes despite the fact that the average hedge fund was down 6.7% and the industry itself lost $88 billion in assets, its worst performing year since the financial crisis. And don't we all wish we had jobs wherein our performance was completely detached from the sums we're being paid, especially if they're princely sums being paid. Oh my God, we need a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. It'll be a little lighter the next go around.